No filters. Say whatever the heck you want. Howard Stern. I wrote about VR a lot um, for blogs like VentureBeat and, and that's where a lot of the understanding of the landscape and the, and, the, and the opportunities came from. So you have companies like Applied VR in the, in the West Coast of the US that just, I think it was three or four months ago, they just got an FDA approval for their VR solution for pain management. You know, you have solutions for isolation therapy so you know a lot of uh, older adults or people in general are stuck in their homes and you know it's been proven at least in some research that um being isolated from human contact can be as as bad as like 15 uh, cigarettes a day kind of thing right and for someone who's uh you know susceptible to to cognitive impairment they can actually accelerate that deterioration so um they've used vr very effectively I, my last article for event for venture beat was specifically on this topic in september 2019 um on being used to you know battle isolation and and the, and the effect that has on on the elderly but pain management um, desensitization therapy, like what I mentioned about my phobias, it's been used for actually, I think, 25 years in clinics, just with the most horrible devices and content compared to what we got now. It's like me looking at the content we created two years ago in our, in our alpha and prototype phase. It was so beautiful when I remember creating it. But if I look back at it now, it's just my eyes bleed. And, you know, even, even so, regardless of that quality of, of my prototype or pre, you know, the Oculus Quest fancy devices and what they were using before, still, as long as you create a VR simulation and you trigger the nonverbal aspects of, of your, you know, circuitry to believe that experience is real, you can do, you know, treatments for phobias, for behavioral modification therapy, uh, obviously for pain management, as we, we're seeing approved already by the FDA and the FDA has already created a new category, medical extended reality. So um, it's, it's, it's versatile. It's, it's tremendous. I mean, I think the main resource I think someone should look for if they're really interested about this is check out Brennan Spiegel's book, VRX. Um, Brennan's uh, part of the team at Cedar sinai He is one of the craziest pioneers in this sector, along with Adam Ghazali um, um, of Achille and Neuroscape. He, in fact, um, 
Achilles just had their Endeavor RX game, declared the first video game, not VR, but first video game back in June 2020 uh, as, a, as a prescribed treatment for pediatric um, uh, you know, ADHD. So, I mean, it's, it's all over the place and VR will be used for so many of these applications. And there's more work. I don't have the evidence at hand, but I think work being done to look at how VR could be used to augment pharmaceutical therapies, right, for various indications. Yes, um, I'm. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an advisor for uh, PNI Therapeutics. Uh, Charles Silvestro. He's um, creating simulations that are designed to amplify the placebo effect. Um, in one respect and in other respects, just by pairing a digital solution, but an embodied digital solution such as VR um, or augmented reality um, to pair it with a pharmaceutical drug and have that marginal outcome, that, that synergy by pairing the two things together to ultimately, you know, improve adherence, obviously, but, but more and more than that is, you know, try to amplify the healing effect, whatever that really is, Um, but explore that. So let's dive right into Virtually. I mean, what is the problem that you're tackling, but also what led you to learn about that problem? You know, um, this is a very crazy time when it comes to... um, digital therapeutics or digital diagnostics or digital medicines, uh, uh, digital formats, being able to do something that uh, uh, the healthcare sector is taking very seriously now. Whereas maybe a few years ago, I I would never have heard of these kind of applications. Um, You know, being able to address certain um, uh, healthcare related issues, you name it, but from the point of view of virtual leap, it's cognitive disorders, cognitive illnesses, um, being able to start to look upon our mental health from the point of view of brain health and actually see mental fitness or brain fitness from a more kind of reachable solution at, at, your, at your beck and call, you know, versus right now, you know, we would have to go to an fMRI machine or find ourselves with a gadget on our heads that has an EEG and eye tracking and all these biometrics, which are just very inaccessible. But, um, you know, more and more, we have technology and digital solutions being able to assess our own brain fitness. And I've always been very, very interested in that area. And Virtual Leap is very much tackling, um, how to be able to assess and perhaps even train your mental fitness or your brain health um, with games that we've designed, or in fact, our neuroscientists have designed as translations of standardized neuropsychological assessment tools that have been around for like decades, like the, like the NBAC task, which was created in Japan in the 1950s. And we've taken these kind of you know, assessment tools and brought them into VR, gamified them into compelling experiences and created this app that basically makes it very easy for you to come play some games 15 minutes a day and get a sense of how you score across a, a number of cognitive functions like your memory skills and your problem solving skills, but also because of VR, your spatial orientation skills, your motor control, your spatial audio awareness. And so we've created this library of these cognitive games and virtual reality and and a pretty sophisticated, powerful enterprise platform that allows uh, pharma companies or hospitals or senior living communities or even schools, companies with with human performance programs 
to basically, you know, um, allow people to feel empowered and in, in understanding their their mental powers and 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 maybe being given tools to to become even more wholesome, you know, in, in that in that respect. So what I'm hearing is this could have multiple. I mean, your target user is all sorts of ages from children, is it, to older people? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we, ultimately, when you talk about brain fitness and cognitive disorders and all these kind of topics, you know, the, the, the demographic that comes to mind is, is older adults, of course, mm-hmm. because, you know, you hear think about cognitive impairment. Uh, mild cognitive impairment as, as a as a precursor to maybe you know a dementia of some sort and it's just very scary topics and it's a very big impact on society but ultimately I think when you start to think about those things you have to think about the continue uh, the continuum of, of you know of a whole lifespan and and looking at brain health in the same way as we look at physical health right now and no one says you only start taking care of your physical health once you're like 70 or 60 or 50 right? you know physical health is something yeah. you should be catering for all throughout your life and if brain health is the same analogy then you should be thinking about it from you know uh, puberty onwards right um, one thing i'll just mention sure. um is you know virtual reality is a medium i still have some you know uh hesitation with uh, allowing someone who's under 13, for example, okay. to use VR. That's, it's just, I don't see enough research out there. And I think if someone's seven years old, they're still doing like, you know, their eyes are still being developed. Their concepts of reality is still being yeah. developed. And VR does mess with you big time uh, if, if a creator wants that to have that effect on a person. So it needs, it's a double-edged sword. And we have to also take care of, of who and what and all the ethical sides of it too. I'm glad you said that because my five-year-old uh, was seeing someone <laughs> using a virtual and he's asking me, what is this device? What can it help me do? And I'm like, mm, just give it another 10 years or so at least, please. <laughs> Let me ask you, who is Amir? Like what led you to becoming a health entrepreneur? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a it's a really like you know controversial question from my point of view um, because you know I find my life to be a very meandering road. I'm a market researcher by trade. Grew up in Canada, spent a, a stint of time in the Middle East, Dubai, becoming a games publisher, uh, representing some of the biggest you know uh, mobile games and localizing them for the for the Middle East region and. And then, you know, taking stabs here and there in the, in the social impact space. And, you know, about five years ago, I started writing um, for VentureBeat and TechCrunch on rent- virtual reality. And I, I was uh, writing without any pay. It was just like writing. And I just wrote dozens and dozens of articles for about, you know, four years where I was on the hunt um, for critical use cases for this technology. And why? Well, you know, I, I'm someone who has... Um, very deep-seated interest in psychology, typology, typology of, of, you know, personalities, big five personality or, or, you know, whimsical, weird, esoteric ones. You know, it's been my pan- passion all through my life, as well as uh, being someone who's, uh, you know, afflicted with certain types of phobias, like heights and, and certain uh, horrible little creatures. And, um, you know, virtual reality is this, like, first digital format that actually triggers our autonomic nervous system into believing that an experience is real. And I've always been fascinated um, about the applications of that kind of technology for, for two areas, you know, healthcare and education. And I was lucky enough to be able to 
get the motivation and the courage and, and also the, the right co-founder to take a stab at it, create a venture at that intersection of VR and in fact, neuroscience and create a solution that I think has a huge impact on society as well as even just selfishly my own personal interests. You know, I, I love people like you who come from non-health backgrounds traditionally, but with a ton of experience, a, a ton of um, perspectives and experience that you bring to the table as an entrepreneur, but just as a professional uh, through and through. And you pivot into the health sector for one reason or another, and you bring so much insight, add so much value, but it's also not easy. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy for a, a health professional to be an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur, but I'm curious what are the unique challenges that you as a non-health professional has found getting into the health sector? It's brutal. I mean, that's the only word I can use. That's this beautiful five-letter wor word. It's brutal um, being a founder, regardless of having a health background or not, but in this sector, addressing the healthcare system. I bet the education system is also a, a hell of an experience. Uh, but healthcare... Um, dealing with a system that has systems in place, regulatory bodies, um, you know, a lot of history, a lot of sagas that you're not aware of as a non, you know, uh, medical professional. Um, I wouldn't have ever guessed the level of effort that would be required for this type of company. Um, you know, Hossein, my CTO and co-founder, he, I've mentioned him too many times, I'm still repeating his name. He should um, have been here today, but he, yeah. Yeah, but you know, I'm the monologue guy. <laughs> he's, he's the doer. He's busy working on what we're doing. Right. I get to just talk about it. Um, <clears throat> he, he would go, Amir, why did you get us into a company where we had to create a library of these games before we even get ready for clinical trials? You know, because one of the things for us is we, <clears throat> as non-medical or non-scientific or non-academic pe people coming in here and obviously having those people with those profiles on the team, but not as the founders, it's a very unique position and it's a very disadvantaged one um, when you're dealing with, with a lot of, um, you know, investors, at least initially or, or, or institutions. But with tenacity, you do win them over eventually if you just keep on pushing the product forward because the product will speak if you put quality into it. If you bleed and sweat and cry and, and put everything you can into making a quality product, it will speak um, enough for you. So that's the only thing you can really, really um, go for it. But he was telling me like, you know, we do all this and we've got such a crazy level of product development and maturity. Um, but even then, because you're at an intersection of emerging tech, <laughs> emerging tech with healthcare to disrupt, and no one likes disruption. People love the, to talk about innovation, but from my experience, they just, they like to have their own association of what innovation means. Innovation means disruption to the status quo and to hierarchies and to, stat and to bureau bureaucratic systems. No one likes it and the healthcare system does not like it. And in fact, it's like an immune system is against us and we're like the virus, if anything. So the experience is, is very interesting, but it's, it creates a lot of content for my you know, upcoming memoir. Can't wait to read it. Look, I just want to uh, share something based on that. So product, if it's good, if it adds value, if it's good quality, for sure. One, one extra thing that I've observed from, I mean, I, I talk about it in you know, the, the link in the description below, but in just pharmaceutical industry and when they bring a drug to market, other than the research, they spend years. I remember when I was a 
doctoral student uh, in, in the States, we had a guy who was on the sales and marketing team for Viagra. And he came to try and do a bit of a recruitment, but he was telling us what they would do ahead of bringing a drug to market. Even before all the results of the clinical trials have been published, they would set the scene. They would do raise, you know, raise awareness, write articles, just raising yeah. awareness about the problem. And they know they have the solution. And then they start introducing the, the solution, get a community, get a mo movement, and then so that basically they're ready to adopt as soon as you've given the solution. And, and that's one thing that often entrepreneurs, this is not about you, by the way, Amir, but often entrepreneurs um, come up with is that they've got, they know a problem, they know a solution, but they haven't built in the marketing that needs to take place beforehand as well as afterhand. So that, that's the only thought that I would add to that. I don't know if you want to come back on that before I follow up with another question. It's just, um, it's a good point for sure. It's, it's just, um, you know, and I can't say my experience as an entrepreneur is the, is the, is the quintessential experience of entrepreneurship, you know, and because I know from a fact of being someone who writes about startups and written dozens and dozens of you know, carefully studied stories of other people um, going about a particular solution. Each one is so individual and some sure. of them are really actually not that unique. They're all kind of paired to get lumped together in this SaaS kind of solutions and stuff. But like when you create something that's, you know, the more novel it is, um, the more disruptive it is, the more hair you're going to lose um, and high pressure you're going to get and, and, and lost sleep and, 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 and whatever. Um, you know, the less innovation it really is, I think the more, that's my kind of uh, thought about it. But, you know, it's just a luxury to, to have some of those things in the process. You, you, you just, you know, you're creating something and you're pushing something forward. And if it's really, really unique, then you don't have many competitors and that makes things really lonely. And it makes even things make them more difficult. The less competitors you have, the more difficult it is um, uh, because it, it sounds like an outlier, an island. And ultimately you just have to do what you have to do to just go one step forward in whatever direction you can, at least in the early stage, when it comes to marketing and these things and pharma companies having that privilege of, of billions of dollars of, of bank account funds and things and personnel. But when you're a team of three or five or 10, you know, it's just whether it dies, it's going to be like that. And so really it's all about just not dying. Um, yeah, I get it. You know, and, 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 and getting to the stage where that marketing or the other stuff comes in and it's important. But, you know, if you're dead, it doesn't matter anyways. And, and so, you know, um, it's a very complicated matter, but also a very simple one if you just kind of uh, just figure out what's the next step 